0: So, this evening, what I really want to talk to you about is the biblical response to suffering. If you are suffering, how should we respond? Because there's not a person in this room who has not suffered or will not face heartbreaking situations in the future. Likely, there is a good portion of you facing something at this very moment. You brought the burdens in with you. So, When we find ourselves in that situation, whether the suffering be great or mild, how should we respond? Well, there's no better place to look than the book of lamentations, a book of lament, because even lament is good in the life of the Christian. It's interesting to think that the passage we just read about God's steadfast love never failing, and that his mercies are new every morning. A passage of bright hope and cheer, which is constantly being quoted by Christians, comes from what is arguably the saddest book in the Bible. This passage is like a psalm in the middle of devastation. So we will take this tonight verse by verse. So please keep your Bibles open. We're going to go through this. Very simple outline. We're going to give you you just a couple minutes on context as we look at this. And then we're going to do six instructions on how to biblically respond to affliction. So if you're a note taker, this will be a good uh, sermon to take notes on. I'll make sure I, I make my headings clear. I'll repeat them at the end of the point. If you want to do that, now you may think six. I'm used to three-point sermons or something like that. Well, I, you got Rob. I don't think you're used to three-point sermons. <laughs> Rob, Rob preaches the word as he should. And so uh, if you're worried about six, though, so just know this. We'll spend most of the time on four, and the last two will be very brief. So if you're watching the flow of time as we go through this. So let's look first at the context. Lamentations 3 uh, verse 21 says this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. So this, ver- uh, this verse starts with the word but or some translations might say yet. What Jeremiah is about to tell us is in contrast to everything he has pretty much said up until this point. So what has he been saying that this is now a new transition, a, a new contrast. Well, the context, as we know if we go way back, is that Israel had been living in sin for years, and Jeremiah had been warning them for years. For the last five kings, Jeremiah had been warning them. Jo- Josiah was the, the, really the last really good king, and he was uh, five kings ago. And then there were four kings that just progressively got worse And Jeremiah is saying, look, God is going to deal harshly with you for your sins if you do not repent. But they didn't listen. So God sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to take them captive. We talked about this last time I was here a little bit. But it was a literal bloodbath. It involved starvation of many people, acts of violence against the people of God, and even sexual assaults against the women of God. This was a terrible situation. Many died. They all pretty much lost their homes. Their homes were destroyed. And those that did survive all of this were taken captive by a pagan king into a pagan land and were prisoners. Imagine if that happened to you. You wanna talk about lament this would be a reason to lament but it even gets worse even the temple of god was destroyed in this process the temple represented god's presence with his people and when god allowed the temple to be stro- be destroyed for their sins he was almost it was like he was saying i'm going to withdraw my presence from you for a while and so we have this terrible situation. And in chapter 1 and 2 of uh, Lamentations are the first two laments. Jeremiah writes, and he basically writes a general lament for uh, just in respond to the people of God. But in this third lament, in chapter 3, he begins his personal, very personal response. Because Jeremiah was not sinful. He had been warning the people, but even he was taken captive in this because of the judgment of God on the nation. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And so we have that. And then in jumping to verses 16, 17, and 18, he just gives a very quick synopsis here. He says, he has made my teeth grind on the gravel. And he has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. He is in such a terrible situation, he seems to have even forgotten the goodness of God. He has come to a point of virtual despair. And when this this happens to us, right? You, You know God's good, God's good, God's good. All of a sudden we get hit by a trial and sometimes we just go, what is going on? And we focus so much on the storm that we forget God is good. And we come to this moment where we feel like there's no hope for me. But... The Holy Spirit, and, and that, that is sometimes God's uh, will to take us there because he's going to teach us something. So he takes us to this point where we feel like we have no hope because every support we've been trusting in the world has faded away. It has fallen short. It has failed. But in that moment, the Spirit enlivens our faith and that is what's happening here in Jeremiah uh, to Jeremiah verse 21 but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope despite the fact that just a few minutes ago I, I didn't think I had any hope the Lord is ministering to me and so there's something stirring him and this is where it gets good so if you're taking notes we're going to go through this and we're going to try to uh, look at, through uh, Jeremiah's teachings and through his example, five things we should do when suffering hits our lives. Number one, the first thing we should do is recognize God's mercy in our suffering. Verse 22 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end no matter how dark it gets even if even if it is God's own hands pressing down on us to chasten us for our sins his steadfast love never ceases so we need to recognize the mercy of God even doing what he's doing and there's two ways we do that the first and the minor point is this often if you are facing suffering You will probably even notice mercies in the sufferings you have been given. You're not suffering as bad as you could. Perhaps you're suffering with cancer, but somehow the Lord has has given you something in there to the chemo's not affecting you as bad as it might, might affect somebody else. Or maybe there's something else. Maybe you're going through a legal problem because someone has come against you, but somehow the Lord has supplied you with attorneys who are gonna stand for you without charge. Even in our sufferings, you see God's little hand of mercy, not his little hand, but little mercies coming through. So begin to recognize even in your suffering the mercies of God, but that's not the main point here, I don't think. The main point is, remember this, you're not getting what you deserve. The King James and the NIV render the latter part of this verse this way. It says, It is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. As bad as it is, we have not been consumed by God. Remember this. Anything short of hell is mercy. This is Jeremiah's statement. And he wasn't even guilty of Israel's sins. But he knew as bad as it was, he deserved even worse than what he was getting. So again, as bad as your sufferings are, as bad as my sufferings are, it is because of the mercy of God that it is not worse. And so the first twenty three goes on, it says, They are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He, he he's not run low on mercy. Every morning, he has a fresh supply. I actually think he's built that knowledge into nature. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm getting up and I woke up and I had a Milky Way for breakfast? What do we say? You had a candy bar for breakfast? Why does it seem wrong to have a candy bar for breakfast when it's okay to have one after dinner? Because there's a purity to the morning. There's a newness, a fresh start. So he seems to even have built this into nature somehow that we know every morning his mercies are new and they're fresh. But the idea that God is merciful to us indicates that we do not deserve goodness from his hand. The wages of sin is death. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We went astray from him. We were trying to find our happiness and our portion and our inheritance in the things of the world. But the only reward that that earned us, our rebellion against him earned us, was eternal punishment. That is all any of us sitting in this room, the man speaking to you tonight, deserves, included. That is all we deserve. But we are not getting it. Why? Why? Because Jesus took on flesh to pay for our sins, He died and He rose again for our justification. Then He sent the Holy Spirit to call us and make us His children. As the scripture says, Oh, what manner of love it is to be called children of God! The mercy is so far, it is infinite. We deserved an infinite punishment. We get an infinite mercy. And so it was His great mercy that saved us, and His mercy has not started running low simply because you are facing suffering. His mercy is alive and well, even in your pain. You are still His child, even as you suffer. Now, it may feel. It may feel like God has forsaken you. But on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In order that we will never be forsaken. So he does not lose his child. And the sufferings he allows in your life and my life are ultimately for our good and for the good of the people of God. And so the first thing we need to remember when we come to suffering is just recognize the mercy of God. You're not getting what you deserve and on top of that, he's giving you little mercies even in the suffering to support you. We'll get more into that as we go. So what's the second thing we need to do when, we, when suffering comes our way? Number two is we need to make the Lord our portion. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So the second thing we must understand in affliction is that the Lord is all we need. He is our portion. He is our inheritance. Even if everything else fades away, we have everything we need in God. John Calvin says this. He goes, we will not be able to stand firm in adversity unless we can be content with God alone. Here's the reason adversity so often rocks our world in ways we never expected is because we're not content in God alone. God has promised to give us everything we need, but why are we not content with that promise? Because what we really want are our wants. And so he allows us to go through this. But we need to learn to be content with God alone. If we don't understand to be content with God alone, we will fail when persecution comes our way. We will fail when false doctrine threatens us with not being liked because we're still looking for our hope and our portion in the things of the world. We've got to see God as everything we need. So one of the good works that God is doing in our lives when affliction hits is he is putting us into a defining situation. Is God enough for you? And the way he often does that is he allows your earthly supports to crumble. The things you trust in the most are the ones he begins to show you the weakness. That's why affliction is different for every one of us. He knows exactly what we need and he administers it precisely and in love. That's why one Southern preacher says, when God sends tribulation into your life, he expects you to tribulate. He knows what he's doing. So often when you talk to someone who's faced a dark night of the soul, and I believe Rob has talked to you about some of that in some of the sermons he's done I've noticed in the past, that they will teach you or they'll tell you that during this time of affliction, this dark night of the soul, that they learned and they grew so much. They'll say things like, "Oh, I was leaning too much on the things of the world for happiness. I was trying to build my own reputation instead of worrying about the glory of God. I wasn't trusting Christ like I should have been. And in my suffering, God was doing a work breaking my sinful ties to the world. Not only is he showing us where our allegiance is not entirely to him, he's turning our allegiance entirely to him. He's doing a good work. The Puritans called... Uh, this sanctified affliction. But sanctified affliction seldom seems sanctified because when you're going through it, the first thing you do is you remember your sins. You remember all the times you've fallen short up until that point, and you begin to see that you have not been trusting God as you should have been, and you've not been leaning on him as you a- had been, and you've been hoping in, the, uh, hoping in the things of the world instead of him. So you begin to see all the dross coming to the surface, and you say, This isn't sanctified affliction. I'm disgusting. (laughs) But he is drawing the dross to the surface in order to wipe it away. And so, the Lord is our portion. My friends, that is to be proclaimed to you today. The Lord is your portion. Your entire world could fall apart and that's okay if you have the Lord. Scripture says, what can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and we could add a whole bunch to that. Sickness, cancer, lawsuits, uh, broken relationships. Nothing separates us from the love of the Lord. So the second thing we need to remember in response to affliction is that God is your portion trust him he will be the one who can satisfy your soul he's provided us with salvation he's our righteousness and he's our joy even in suffering and our strength in suffering which kind of leads us to the next point so the third point we need to do when when, uh, affliction hits is we need to learn to wait we need to learn to be patient under affliction Verse 25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Our job in affliction, I want that that clear. Our job, our work, the thing we are supposed to do in affliction is wait patiently for the Lord. That means to trust his timing. Now, waiting always involves seeking the Lord. It involves crying out in lament. Lament is a godly thing, and we do not have enough of it in the evangelical church today. You ever want to read a great book on that? There's a great book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, the role of lament in the Christian life. And so we need to also make our complaints known to, the, to God. Don't complain about God, but make sure the complaints are known. Speak them out. That's all involved in Waiting. But again, our natural disposition is to try to gain the world. But if you gain the whole world, you can lose your soul. Suffering teaches us something different. It teaches us to endure in the opposite conditions. Where we're losing the world, but gaining our souls. And so we must learn to wait. As we wait, we're seeking him and he is good to those who seek him. Again, you will often notice little mercies in your suffering, not only in the the affliction he has given you itself, but in the response to your prayers. He'll provide you with strength. He will be with you. I remember reading the biographies of David Brainerd or George Whitfield. They're both of them suffered with illnesses that they could barely stand up at times. They were so fatigued. And they would say, Lord, I need to preach And then they would say, the Lord just assisted me and I preached for an hour with power and then immediately went home and collapsed again. God was giving them mercy even in the midst of their suffering. And maybe you're facing, you know, something and you've got to go to work and you're like, I don't even know how I can focus on work today. How am I going to handle this? How am I going to... Handle, you know, raise my children when I'm in such a terrible spot. The Lord will give you those mercies, He'll provide you the strength. Wait on Him because those that wait on Him shall mount up with wings as eagles. Now, Jeremiah explains further in verse 26. He says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Did you catch that? It's good that you shall wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, waiting's not easy. I mean, Who here loves a waiting room? Those are the things you try to avoid at all possible cost because it involves time. It involves patience. And patience is contrary to our sinful passions. Those sinful passions that war against our soul. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. So Jeremiah is not saying wait and expect an immediate result He says, no, we're to bear the affliction for a time as set by God and we're to do it quietly. Quietly here means to wait in peace, in stillness, trust in God. That's what the phrase, you know, the scripture, be still and know that he is God. And this is what I really want to bring out in this verse. It is good. It is good To wait on the Lord. It is good to sit quietly under afflictions and wait for God, even when He seems absent. What does good mean here? Well, it means all the typical things it means it is morally good, that is our proper response. It also means it is good for us. He's doing something in us, but ultimately it means it is good according to God's will for your life. He wants you to do this. This is his plan for you. Why? Because he's teaching us endurance. You may be sitting here thinking, I'm failing because the Lord has laid me aside for a while with this sickness, or the Lord has laid me aside for a while with this trial I'm facing over here. I can't serve in the church. I can't do these other things. I'm not doing what I'm called to do. I'm failing. Well, according to this, you're not failing. If you're waiting on the Lord, you're doing what you're called to do at this moment. You may be entirely fulfilling your calling as you wait patiently on the Lord. Why? Because he's training you in godliness. Moses was in the wilderness 40 years before he went back to, uh, God sent him back to Egypt to set the people free. That was 40 years of waiting. And so we are called to wait because he is doing his work. So my challenge to you tonight, if you're like, this is hard. I don't know what's going on. Every day I wake up and the burden is just too heavy. I'm saying, keep doing the good work. You are doing a good work. It's pleasing to the Lord. I would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep it up. This is your time to endure and exercise hope in a fallen world as you experience the fallen world hope right now in what you cannot see you don't understand he hasn't promised to tell you everything here why he's doing everything he's doing but he has told us in Romans chapter 5 verse 3 that we can rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love through the Holy Spirit is shining brightly in your hearts. And if you have endurance and if you have patience and you are enduring, it's because the Holy Spirit's at work in you. He's producing what you need. Now, This, what I'm talking about, the wait and the sit and just bear it, is not stoicism. Stoicism is the philosophy that basically says life stinks, so learn to grin and bear it. That is not this. Why? Because we've already been told that we have a portion. Stoicism offers no portion, it just says life's a roller coaster, buckle up. We have something better. We know even through the roller coaster that God is good and it is all coming to the right end. So even if we have nothing in this world, he can satisfy our hearts. So the third response to suffering is to learn and wait. To learn to wait. Now the fourth kind of goes along with it, but it comes down to this. We need to learn to bear the yoke. Look at verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So what is this yoke that Jeremiah is speaking of? Well, like an oxen guided by his master, we need to learn to let God determine the course of our lives. This is an act of submission to God. Now, the only way we can do this is if we know That the Lord is our portion and our source of true happiness. We've come to the point where we say, you can guide my life as you please. In two different ways. When we came to Christ, we said, Christ, you are Lord. I will obey your commands to the best of my ability. When I read in scripture that I'm supposed to live in a way, I need to submit to those commands. But it also is a yoke in another way. It is to say, I also trust you with the circumstances you bring into my life. Job said it well. He said, shall you accept good from God and not trouble? The Lord is sovereign. He is working. And so this yoke, in a sense, is to relinquish all our demands on God that he do as we wish. Instead, we trust his way. So we are to bear his yoke even when it involves suffering. So this is the yoke we are called to bear. And we've learned earlier that even in this life, it is better this way. Why? Because bearing the yoke leads to peace. It leads to hope. It leads to stillness in times of turmoil. It helps us reject that victim mentality that is plaguing our world today. It is, and why do we reject the victim mentality? Because God is instilling us with character and hope. So compared to the world's yoke and trying to find happiness in the world, Jesus has told us that his yoke is easy, that we're to learn from him for he is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The the non-Christian may think they've escaped the yoke and they're living their own life but they are under a much heavier yoke the yoke of the demands of trying to keep up with the Joneses and the prince and the power of the air who is controlling the whole thing and the fear of death that they have no hope from we are to say no I will bear this yoke I will bear the yoke of Christ not only in how he tells me I should live according to his words but in the the providences he brings into my life So verse 28 continues the same thought. Let him sit in silence when it, the yoke, is laid on him. So when when the yoke is on you, silence means to trust and follow his ways. Don't chafe against it. Don't fight against the yoke trying to escape him. Even when he is dealing uh, severely with you for sins, God chastens his people and usually the first thing people will say when the hardship comes is, is, oh, this has nothing to do with my sinfulness. No, no, uh, this is something else. And it's very clear that sometimes God does not, uh, suffering comes to our lives and it has no relation to sin. He said that about the blind man, right? Why was this man born blind? They asked him. Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? And Jesus said, it was because of no one's sin that this man was born blind. He was born blind to show my power. So there's definitely times when we suffer when Sin is not the cause of it. But it seems today in the evangelical church that it's impossible to ever admit that God might be dealing with me for my sins. You know what scripture says? If you are never chastened for your sins, you are illegitimate and you are not a child of God. Don't be so quick to brush that off. And so... He is coming, and we bear that yoke. Lord, you are my Savior. Wherever you lead me, I am content to go. I will trust you. And so we don't chase against it. And his yoke ultimately is not burdensome because he is in it, and he loves you, even when he's dealing with us for our sins. Verse 29 just takes it a little bit further, and then we're going to wrap up very quickly with the last two. It says, uh, "Let him put his mouth in the dust, and there he may be. And that yet there may be hope. If you find yourself in the place where all you can do is lay in the dust, because that's where God has put you, there may yet be hope. In fact, there is hope, because His mercies never fail, and His compassions never end." So we, we need to be in this idea of laying in the dust to be humble before him. He can do with our lives as he wills. Calvin says this idea of mouth in dust means to speak once again of our silence before God. So even if it's something we can do nothing about the suffering we're facing whatever we do we're not complaining against him. So let me address this really quick before I just mention the last two. What does this idea of waiting mean for things like self-defense if someone comes against you wrongly or um, someone at work maligns you and is trying to get you fired for things you didn't do? Does waiting mean say, I'll just sit back and take it? No, you have every right to use the legal recourses and the HR department to do as you will. But as you go through that suffering, because even going through that process is suffering, be at peace and trust God that he knows what he's doing. So this idea of waiting means you can't ever do anything You, you, you to take the steps that you were supposed to take. But what does it also then mean when it comes to pray, praying for things like healing or help or mercy? Well, when you wait on the Lord, pray your heart out for mercy. Pray your heart out for healing. Follow the... the The model of your Savior. Pray so hard that if you have to pray so hard, you begin to sweat drops of blood. But in the end, you say this: But not my will, Lord, but yours be done. You're my Master. You're my Savior. And so often, He moves, even in this life, but we know. We must learn to trust him. So the last two very quickly. Number five, I'm not going to spend much time on this. Recognize the sovereignty of God even when others are sinning against you. Look at verse 30. It says, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. So people come against us in two ways. They come against us with their actions and they come against us with their words. But even if the sins of other people are involved, no that God is sovereign even over that. They have not escaped him somehow and they're doing something to you that he has no sovereignty over. And he is merciful even in what he allows them to do. And know this, as we read in Lamentations and Jeremiah and all these places, if they do not repent, they will face God's wrath. But vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so whether their actions or words are against you, trust God and know he is still sovereign last one two sentences on this remember your sufferings are temporary number six remember your sufferings are temporary verse 31 for the lord will not cast off forever all of this is temporary all of your sufferings often in this life he will move and set you free you know this you've been christians for years most of you and i said this before once but you're still here because you survived all those trials, because the Lord put his hand on you and pulled you out. But every single one of us here will one day face a trial that will take our lives, whether it's an illness or an accident or something. But even then, that is only temporary because he is going to bring us home. So six things to do when suffering comes. Recognize God's mercy in it. Make the Lord your portion. Learn to wait. Recognize the yoke of God's sovereignty and master, Him being master over your life and trust Him. Number five, recognize even the sovereignty of God when others are sinning against you. And number six, remember your sufferings are temporary. He is going to bring you home. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for how much it teaches us. Lord, we know this is not easy for us to learn. And we can sometimes think we know it, but then when suffering hits us, it knocks us sideways and we get disoriented for a while. But Lord, we just pray that when suffering hits or if anybody's going through it today, that you just help them see that this is actually good for their lives. You have a plan. You may not reveal everything as to why you're doing it, but we know that you know what is in the darkness. You know what you are doing. And so we Ask as we come to you tonight that you help us bear under it and that your good work will be completed in us. In Jesus' name, amen.